It's been a year of economic shockwaves felt across the world. Supply chain disruptions, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, surging energy prices and inflation, and more. But make no mistake, the headlines only tell part of the economic story. On this episode, we take stock of the developing saga that is 2022. And on behalf of the CBRE Global Research Team, we welcome all of you to the 2022 Global Mid-Year Real Estate Market Outlook. You may recognize the familiar voice, Julie Whalen, CBRE's Global Head of Occupier Thought Leadership. Julie will help us dig in with a roundtable of CBRE sector leaders to hear what they see in the headlines and on the horizon. Meanwhile, another top CBRE leader joins me for a one-on-one to provide deeper analysis and perspective, namely, Head of America's Leasing, Mike Watts. Hi, Spencer. Great to be here, and I look forward to digging in. Coming up, CBRE's Global Mid-Year Real Estate Market Outlook for 2022. I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take and our annual Mid-Year Outlook. Mike, hope you are having a good year so far. I am, Spencer. Thanks. The economy, on the other hand, is taking its share of lumps, but that's what we're here to talk about today. Well, Mike, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. But before we offer our take, let's turn to the mid-year outlook. So our listeners know, here's how it's going to work. We'll share excerpts of CBRE's full outlook presentation. And then, Mike, you and I will unpack what our panelists have to say, and we'll give it a fresh weekly take, take, so to speak. Sounds like a plan. We begin with an overall look at the economy with Julie Whalen and CBRE's global chief economist, Richard Barkham. Richard, there are mixed messages about the direction of the global economy. Consumer confidence is low, business confidence is falling, and inflation continues to surprise on the upside. But on the other hand, consumers are still spending, and U.S. job growth continues to outplace the supply of workers. But clearly, the concerns around the risks are growing and they're real. Can you help us frame out what the story is today? Yes, I can. Um, And I think we're heading to recession or at least a very serious slowdown. It's important to note, despite all the volatility that you've mentioned, uh, we are not there yet. But I think the pressure on the consumer and on business from rising energy prices, high food prices, and most importantly, rising interest rates, is going to see demand ebbing away by Q4 of this year and into the first half of 2023. We've had some slowdown in the United States, but there is more to come over the next 12 months or so. So I think we're headed for recession. So you talk about recession, and I know from my perspective, the global financial crisis was the last recession that really resonates with me, in part because of how severe it was. How severe can we expect this recession to be? Okay, well, I don't want to sugarcoat the message, but I think there are factors in play, quite a few of them, that might lead us to the conclusion that we're going to face a moderate recession. On the one hand, corporate balance sheets are reasonably strong. And despite the fact that demand will ebb away, I think because of the war for talent, companies will want to hold on to their labour. So we may not see widespread spike in unemployment. Um, I would say also that consumers, even now, have still quite a lot of savings and cash accumulated from the pandemic period. And they can use that. They can draw that down 
in tough times. So consumer spending might not dip quite as hard as it might otherwise have done. And I think with regard to inflation, we're not going to some multi-year wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s. This is a very nasty inflation spike, but I think we've reached the peak of inflation. I think it's going to ease over the next 6, 12, 18 months. And by the middle of 2023, that will allow the Fed and the other central banks around the world to start cutting interest rates so demand can revive. So I, I do think there is a route there to a moderate recession. Having said all of that, there are some big downside risks out there as well. And I think the war in Ukraine is the biggest downside risk. That could escalate and that would have a serious impact on Europe. And I'm particularly worried about emerging markets right now. Emerging markets are struggling with oil prices, with food costs, and they themselves hold around $4 trillion of dollar-denominated debt. So they may struggle to pay the interest out on that debt. We might see some defaults, and that could feed through the financial system. But on balance, we're looking at a moderate recession, I think, that will last through the first uh, half of 2023, and then we'll see things pick up again. So the world is a big place, and you mentioned a little bit about Asia, but how do you see the scenario playing out between the different regions? Well, I think um, Europe looks to be the most vulnerable. You've got the rise in energy prices. It's important to realise that uh, that gas feeds uh, northern European manufacturing business, um, and so the, the impact there on the northern European export machine is pretty acute, I think. The United States seems to have the most acute inflation problem right now, not just through rising prices, but also because labour demand is well ahead of labour supply. Uh, but equally, I think at the moment in the United States, we're seeing supply chains easing up. We're seeing inventories building up. And I think we're about to see inflation easing there as retailers begin to cut prices in order to shift the backlog of inventories that they have. Asia is actually quite mixed. China is in recession already, but it's stimulating. But a lot of the big uh, economies in Asia, they export to China. So they've had a hit from uh, the slowdown in China. And they're about to take a hit, I think, from the slowdown in demand in Europe. On the other hand, China is picking up. And I think one bright spot for Asia is just uh, auto demand. Even though we might be going into a, a slowdown in the United States, there is a backlog of demand, pent-up demand for, for US autos and in Europe, maybe 4 million autos in the United States. And of course, what that means is that that keeps up demand for semiconductors. And APAC is a, is a really big uh, semiconductor producing region. So um, China stimulating semiconductor uh, cycle still pretty strong in APAC um, might offset some of the, the current and future downside from the export hit. For your final question, from your bird's eye view, how is this outlook going to impact our real estate markets? Well, all recessions lead to rising unemployment, and rising unemployment will feed through into rising vacancy. Some sectors will be worse hit than others, but rental growth will also ease back quite considerably because uh, vacancy is on the increase. Life sciences, data centres, 
um, and industrial, the sectors that are powered by the digital economy, they're likely to fare better than some of the more traditional sectors. Okay, Mike. So from Richard's point of view, it looks like we're in for a modest recession. But Mike, you're in the office leasing business and you speak to clients every day that have to make decisions based upon the macro outlook. What are you hearing from the clients? Well, like yourself, Spencer, I am a road warrior, so I am across the country pretty much every week. And I would say the number one question I get from owners of office real estate, especially those institutional owners with large portfolios, is what should I do with my asset right now? And I remind them that real estate is unique product type and it's a unique asset, in particular office buildings. So it matters what you own, where you own it, and what kind of improvements you've done to it, which is really how it should be. So we're advising our clients to step back and take a look at their asset objectively, look at where they think it's strong, where they think it's weak, and from there, devise a plan to compete better in a somewhat new environment. Owners understand recessions. But work from home, flexible hours, COVID, that's a bit of a curveball that everybody's getting adjusted to. One other point I want to mention uh, that Richard brought up, unemployment and vacancy. Historically, you could say when unemployment rises, it has a negative impact and vacancy rises. Um, I might take a bit of a contrarian view in the U.S. on office space and say, a little bit of an increase in the unemployment rate might not be a bad thing. Because as corporate America figures out how to get people back to the office, full employment doesn't help that. But a little bit of uh, unemployment increase could potentially shift a little bit of the power balance back to corporate America maybe dictating a little bit more than they're doing right now. So, Mike, that's a terrific segue to go back to the outlook as we're now going to discuss the office sector specifically. Here again is Julie Whalen with CBRE's Director of Office Research for the Americas, Jessica Morin and Ada Choi, who leads Occupier Research in APAC. The global office market has been in the hot seat, as we all know so well, for the past two plus years. And its very existence has been called into question. So from your perspective, what is the state of the market today in major markets around the world? In the U.S., the worst really seems to be behind us. Over the past three quarters, we have seen that move-ins have actually exceeded move-outs. Vacancies are starting to stabilize, although they reached that nearly 30-year high. And asking rents are starting to moderately rise. Um, And MES, same thing, across major markets, we've seen vacancies are stabilizing or decreasing with a few exceptions like in Berlin and Barcelona. Now, on the return to office side in both regions, the U.S. and Europe, it has been slow, but we do expect occupancy levels to really start to pick up in the fall once employers really make it more clear what their expectations are for their employees. But with that said, the majority of employers, both in the U.S. and in Europe, do support hybrid work. So we do expect employees to be in the office less, and that will have an overall net negative impact on demand. I think, Jessica, if you compare Asia Pacific, we are coming out from this crisis earlier. I look at the net absorption in 2021. In fact, it has increased 40% last year in APEC. It's a very strong rebound. However, for this year, we are expecting this demand momentum to be normalizing. 
Of course, APEC is quite a big region, so the supply and vacancy fundamentals vary significantly. If we look at mainland China, particularly Shanghai, it was largely affected by the restrictions and city lockdowns in Q2, so the numbers did not look well. But for uh, the other markets that have limited supply, rents are escalating. This includes Singapore, Seoul, and Sydney. And we note that occupiers have to plan ahead to secure, secure the space. Meanwhile, uh, some of the occupiers can enjoy more optionality and rental discounts. The rental cycle will last longer in mainland China, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and some of the Southeast Asian markets. Great. Thank you for those insights. It's always important to look market to market because real estate is still a very local discussion. So here in the U.S., we have seen enhanced trends and we hear a lot of anecdotes around the flight to quality. So, Jessica, I'm interested to hear if you have data that supports those anecdotes. And then Ada would be really interested to understand if you're seeing the same trends in Asia Pacific. Yeah, so we do have the data to support flight to quality. In the second quarter in the U.S., we looked at 2,700 lease transactions across 12 of the largest U.S. office markets from 2019 to the first half of this year. And we classified the buildings where the leases took place as either top tier, which is that AA plus base, or lower tier. And so what we saw is that base rents across all quality tiers increased um, this year. However, for lower tier space, we saw that concessions in the forms of tenant improvement allowances and free rent increased quite a bit in that lower tier space. And so that had a net overall effect um, that brought effective rents down by 3.4% last year and by 1.1% this year. Alternatively, on the top tier space, landlords have actually been able to roll back concessions because of strong demand for very high quality space. So we actually saw effective rents increase um, by 3.8% last year and by 6.7% so far this year. So the flight to quality is very real. We're seeing it in this growing preference for sustainable features and buildings. Asia Pacific is not that different. And also in this region, uh, many cases when it comes to relocation flight to quality is associated with the workplace transformation initiatives. So the occupiers can use the new uh, space for more flexible hybrid working style as well. I think another reason for this flight to quality is the ESG uh, desire. So some of the relocation is to the greener buildings, and we know that many of them are new buildings as well. Well, I think there is a lot of discussion whether those relocations involve downsizing, and we know this is true, but most of these moves are basically cost or space neutral. It's a trend we are seeing in Tokyo, in Taipei, and several Australian markets. However, I think going forward, there may be some resistance to this relocation because of the sharp escalation of fit-out costs. So this could potentially lower occupiers' intention to relocate. It's difficult to get the, the budget. We know that some of the landlords are increasing incentives on tenant improvement or uh, the fit-out period, or even provide turnkey solutions so it will be easier for them to attract the tenants. 
Very interesting. So it's clear that tenants want better space. They're willing to pay for it. And the rest of the market is really going to get converted into highest and best use, which makes sense. There's a reshuffle going on. So as if the pandemic weren't enough to challenge office, we have what Richard talked about, which is a global economic slowdown and a looming recession. So how does that outlook change your outlook for office in the near term? A recession will weaken demand for office space, and it's going to further delay the U.S. office recovery. Companies are going to look for where they can cut expenses. So I'd expect continued right-sizing and possibly an increase in short-term renewals. With that said, we have started seeing this play out. There's been a few tech companies that have pressed pause on planned office expansions and even their current underway build-outs in cities like New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. But aside from those few examples of uh, companies, I do think we'll still continue to see leasing activity over the next several quarters, but occupiers are just going to move even more cautiously. Well, I think for Asia Pacific, there is pent-up demand for several markets when uh, who are relatively late when it comes to coming back to the office. India, for example, we have seen a very strong rebound in terms of the demand. Philippines is another example. I think uh, Richard has also mentioned that we are optimistic about a recovery in China. So it's quite of a counter-cyclical kind of movement, China, Hong Kong. We are going to see the recovery in 2023. And that's why we are expecting uh, the demand to improve, in fact, in 2023 in that region. And it is expected that uh, the Chinese government is going to prioritize the support uh, of economic growth. And this will also help us as an office market to see the improvement in the demand for the later half or next year. So, Mike, we just heard from our colleagues in the U.S. and in Asia about how we're looking at a recovery period of a couple of years. Uh, What's your point of view of when we get back to normal? I love your point of view on that, Mike. Sure. And uh, not to be flippant, but I think we've got to figure out what the definition of normal is going forward. Um, A couple things I would say. One, job growth does matter. And you see in markets where there's been good job growth over the last three to five years, typically they have outperformed from an office standpoint. But I want to touch on flight to quality. When you hear the term flight to quality, most people think flight to quality is synonymous with flight to new construction. And that's not the case. Flight to experience is more appropriate. That includes new construction, but it also includes older buildings that have been completely redeveloped and created great experience for an employer and their employees. Uh, As I like to say, there's a number of five-star hotels across the world that are in 100-year-old buildings, right? It's the experience. It's not the building. Uh, But the building supports the experience and helps enhance the experience. We are pretty consistently seeing that across the U.S. in most major markets. We're seeing a disproportionate amount of deal activity go into new construction and buildings that have been redeveloped over the last five years. So that, for existing owners of older buildings, becomes a bit of a dilemma. They need to create a new experience at their building that can help them capture this lease velocity. But one point that's really been overlooked, and this is a huge deal, never have office tenants been more insensitive to rental rate than right now. 
if you create the environment I want for my employees, I will pay you what you want. And a great example, I was talking to the CEO of a company yesterday who just signed a new lease in downtown Chicago to relocate. And he said the first proposal he got from the building that they ultimately signed a lease at, they accepted the rental rate. They did not negotiate that. Negotiated all the other terms hard, um, but they provided an upgrade to them in building quality. They provided brand new pre-built space that was furnished, and they also had wired the space. So the transaction experience was easy, the building experience was easy, and his employees are fired up to make the move. So the good news for office owners even in markets like we see across the country that are recovering and the demand is off, is that if you create the right experience, you can get the rent you want, and that's the most direct impact on building value. So, Mike, I am hearing that people are price insensitive to rent, so I'm agreeing with you on that. But what I'm also hearing is that some of these other factors, the TI packages, uh, the free rent periods, uh, those are also getting larger in some of these second tier buildings are having to pay up to get that face run. Is that a fair statement, Mike? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Some of that is driven by market factors. Some is simply driven by the cost of construction. So there was no way tenant improvement packages were going to remain stable or go down as costs of interior buildouts typically always exceed the allowances that are given. I want to bring up another point, Mike, that you and I have debated before, which is the amenity package versus the amenities in the neighborhood surrounding the building. And we could put a whole host of amenities into the building, outdoor space, food courts, whatever it might be. But how does that compete with the neighborhood around it that may not have those things? Um, and so how do you describe that to some of your tenants, Mike? What we advise owners on is, and you're right, it's in a perfect world, you have both. You have a robust amenity package within the building, and when they walk out, they have various food options for lunch and health clubs and other things. One thing we are telling uh, owners, especially of larger assets, you can't always rely on amenities outside the building to be perceived by the tenants as equivalent to an amenity inside the building. Typical example would be, I'm sitting, I've got an office building and right next door is a very nice four-star health club. That will not satisfy most tenants. They would rather have a less than four-star health club within their building that's reasonably priced or passed through an operating expense than have to walk outside, go next door. So you need to have the amenity package in the building right now. There's really no way around it because developers doing new construction have a blank slate. They can gauge the interest of the tenants that are in the market at the time or their target tenants and pretty much paint you know, the watercolor of perfection. So as an existing building, you need to be able to compete with that and you can't rely solely on your neighborhood. The neighborhood can support you, but the neighborhood cannot replace you having a robust amenity package within the building. So let's push the argument just a little bit further now. Some buildings are older and may not make sense to put some of these amenities or the capex required to uh, make it green, uh, particularly when you're seeing changes in law, like we're seeing local law 97 in New York and equivalent versions of that around the country, which essentially will regulate the amount of electrical use you have and carbon footprint your building has. Uh, are we going to see a wave of conversion 
of some of these older office buildings to multifamily or other uses. What do you think, Mike? I'm not sure if you're going to see a wave of it. I would say you're probably going to see a higher amount of it in most markets than historical. Markets, especially some of the larger urban cities, uh, where multifamily is going pretty well right now, Older buildings often have awkward floor plates, courtyards, lots of columns. Those things are a little bit easier to design around in multifamily, depending on the size of the units you're doing and the diversity of the units within the complex itself. If a office tenant is evaluating the inefficiency of an older building versus the efficiency of a newer building, doesn't have to be new construction, just a newer building, which will typically be rectangular core, rectangular floor plate, floor to ceiling glass, continuous window line, right? That's kind of the benchmark. Um, It would make a lot of sense as an owner to consider a conversion now more than ever um, because that efficiency, that inability to not lease the tenant more space because the building has some issues uh, ultimately comes down to you know their ability to pay rent. And even though I'm saying they're rent insensitive, they're not if efficiency insensitive. So I, I think you'll see more, but I don't think it's going to be wholesale in many markets. Well, Mike, uh, as we're talking about conversion from office to multifamily, it conveniently is a good segue into our discussion of multifamily on the Outlook call. And uh, before we get into uh, what our experts on the Outlook call said, I will say that historically, we saw a situation where the office sector led the multifamily sector, where for every six office using jobs, approximately, you saw demand for one more multifamily unit, as an example. That may have reversed now because we're seeing more demand for multi, and maybe that drives office. But let's hear what the experts have to say, and then we'll come back and we'll have more of a discussion on this, Mike. Sure. But now here's Julie again with our multifamily research leads, Jen Seabritz in the UK and Matt Vance in the Americas. Matt, multifamily has been a resilient asset class since the pandemic. On one hand, inflation and wage growth suggest that could continue. But as Richard mentioned, consumer confidence is low, which might suggest something else. So what's your perspective? Uh, Well, Julie... Apartment rents are generally determined around occupancy, and housing demand in the U.S. remains exceptionally high. It has brought occupancy rates to historic levels, and so it's not surprising that we're seeing exceptional rent growth as well. The average renter pays right around 27% of their income toward rent. It's below uh, that 30% typical threshold considered to be cost burden. So there is room for additional rent growth. Uh, And as you point out, uh, especially with additional wage growth, uh, I should probably uh, acknowledge quickly that for lower income households, uh, they're especially in in high cost cities, they face much more significant affordability issues. Uh, But it is great that we're seeing more and more emphasis from uh, the FHA, Fannie and Freddie and investment funds and strategies being established to tackle this problem. Now, on the other hand, All right, vacancy rates did begin to increase last quarter, uh, and it was really the result of both supply and demand. Developers have responded to these incredibly strong fundamentals. They've added a lot of new supply to the pipeline. uh, And at the same time, we saw unseasonably weak demand. And some of that slowdown in demand is the delayed effect of what we saw last year, which was a truly record year for housing demand in the U.S., 
But also, I have to believe that some of that slowdown in demand is being driven by falling consumer confidence. The U.S. multifamily sector will continue performing above trend for a while longer, but that vacancy rates will continue their drift back up toward more normal levels this year and next, uh, and that we can expect rent growth to decelerate. Jen, we hear global investors are targeting Europe now for multifamily properties. What is behind that trend, and do you think it's going to be lasting? Yeah, so Judy, look, compared to North America, multifamily housing as an investment-grade asset class is a relatively new concept. I mean, living in private rental homes isn't a new concept in Europe, but instead of being provided by the state or individual landlords, more is being provided by large-scale private and institutional investors. And of course, many of these investors cut their teeth in the US and are bringing their expertise to Europe. In many places, there's a first mover advantage to be had with the ability to gain significant market share, particularly in the higher end space, which is still achieving premium rents. It's not just that. The size of the rental market is growing. This is being driven by longer run social and demographic factors, which are delaying entry into home ownership. Also factored in is high and rising house prices. This has led to affordability barriers to to home ownership. And this demand has led to robust rental growth and low vacancies. In the UK, we currently have the highest levels of occupancy since we started collecting the data. So this last question for this section goes to both of you. And we know the world is a connected place. And Jessica and Ada talked about the rise of hybrid. So how does the rise of hybrid and in turn more remote or home working, what does that mean for downtown and conversely suburban multifamily market health? Uh, Well, I would say in the U.S., uh, early in the pandemic, uh, we saw much bigger, much more negative impacts in downtowns and expensive coastal cities. Uh, But now renters have stormed back into their urban, their live, work, play, downtown apartments. Uh, Developers in the U.S. have recognized the need that their residents have for more space to accommodate remote working. They are increasing the average size of the apartments being developed. The other way that they're approaching this is by incorporating workspaces directly into the shared common areas of these properties and really giving their tenants the ability to leave their apartment and feel almost like they're going to work, even if it's just down the hall or up or down a few floors. Yeah, I mean, similar to you in the US, Matt, I mean, large cities like London were really hard hit by remote working practice, but we found housing demand has returned really swiftly. Interestingly, we've, we've seen a pickup in demand for centrally located small apartments, where families have left London for rural locations and now need somewhere to stay for the few days a week that they work in the office. I also agree with you, Matt, um, about the demand for workspaces you know, within apartments or within the overall scheme. This has become an essential requirement. And of course, another issue that's high up on the agenda is sustainability. Developers in Europe are starting to consider how upcoming regulations might have an impact on the overall design of their schemes. So, Mike, there's a close relationship between multifamily demand and office demand. And as I said before we heard the clip, the case used to be that for every six or so office using jobs, there was a multiplier effect in terms of multifamily unit demand. It was also a multiplier effect for retail demand, hotel and otherwise. But now it seems like it might have reversed. 
uh, where multifamily demand might be driving office demand, particularly in big cities where people have smaller units. Um, if I were to quote one of our great friends and colleagues, Marianne Tai, she said, nobody moves into an apartment in New York City to work in that apartment. And uh, I think that's a great statement. But uh, what do you think, Mike? Well, first, I agree with that statement. In a lot of major markets and secondary markets, um, you could make an argument over the last 10 years, they didn't have enough multifamily. And so the development you see going on now is really catching up, especially in these secondary markets. As that happens, then you find the commute becomes virtually a non-issue. If you are renting a new apartment in downtown Minneapolis, working in downtown Minneapolis becomes quite easy, you know, aside from the snow on occasion. Um, so I do agree that the multifamily impact may have taken the lead and will help drive the office demand. I have seen some very large projects where they have put more common space in the multifamily rental buildings so that people in theory, in a hybrid scenario, when they are working from home, can leave their apartment but not leave the building and kind of drop down to this common space level. And that becomes sort of getting out of uh, the house, so to speak. But there are impacts for this. One that we're seeing pretty much across the board is the return of the conference center wholeheartedly in office buildings. And why is that? Why that is, is many employers who are offering a hybrid work scenario are dictating the specific days when everybody has to be in the office. On those days, most of their offices were never designed to have 100% of the population in the office at the same time. And they're using that time to disseminate key information initiatives because they don't have everybody in the office on a normal basis where it would happen organically over time. So now they need the building to provide larger conferencing space than historical to put all of their people in one place for a couple hours so that they can disseminate information, talk about initiatives, and also rally the troops. So uh, we are seeing that impact of hybrid force a little bit of a change in the amenity package at an office building or certain tenants who are larger are reconfiguring their space so they can build out large conferencing facilities within their space to accommodate all hands on deck certain days of the week. Let's talk now about um, multifamily, retail, office, all in the same place. Does that mixed-use environment live, work, play environment, or what I often call the better business district environment, drive some of the advice you're giving to your clients, Mike? Yeah, I mean, those kind of developments, uh, which are large developments, usually done in the largest cities. I was just speaking with a client who's about to embark on one of those. It'll have retail, parking, office, and a bit of residential in it also. Um, that particular project now, it's a main and main location in a really strong city, uh, they will not be quoting a rental rate on the office space because their fear is they quote something and it's too low. So think about that. They will be well in excess of $100 a foot, but they're not going to quote. They're not going to let their agent quote. They're going to sort of have the people quote to them what they're willing to pay. So that's a pretty interesting factor. But the environment that they're putting together within a broader city that's desirable to many people in terms of location and weather and some other things um, is part of what you're talking about. So I think those mixed-use projects 
um, are here to stay. Most cities have a neighborhood that's trendy, that's hot. That's where the top chefs will open the restaurants. That's where you have the cool restaurants and bars and some boutique hotels. In those areas, as office buildings come up or get converted, they really are integrated into that neighborhood like you're talking about. So they directly benefit from the neighborhood and they directly contribute to the neighborhood. Mike, as you mentioned uh, earlier in the show, we're both road warriors. And, um, you know, like Johnny Cash said, I've been everywhere, man. And I have been everywhere. And this week I was in Salt Lake City. And when I was in Salt Lake City, I was in a neighborhood called Silicon Slopes, which is about 20 miles outside of downtown. It had a tremendous amount of new multifamily, had a tremendous amount of office retail. It also had the local soccer stadium. And it reminded me of Frisco in Dallas. It reminded me of Tempe in Arizona, reminds me of the Fulton Market in Chicago. Are those markets the future of office? And what do you say about the future of CBD? Well, those markets, they're not the future of office, but I think you're going to see most major cities, that area that's kind of been designated five, six, ten years ago is a little bit edgy, start to turn over and turn into a cooler area. South End and Charlotte, perfect example. Relative to CBDs, um, I think a few things. that um, Buildings have the opportunity to reinvent themselves. Um, and maybe some owners have been a little reluctant over the years to do it because they've been able to maintain occupancy without putting uh, more capital into the building. That really probably is not going to work right now. Um, so they're going to have to start investing in these buildings. That's not all doom and gloom for them. It's figuring out what the proper package is and calibrating it and the proper capital requirement uh, to make their building competitive from an experience standpoint. The other thing that COVID has done, there was a backlog of buildings, as you know, that had pretty much gotten executed their lease-up plan and were going to come to market um, in 2020, and they couldn't come to market. And so a couple years later, what's happened is the lease term that they had, the Walt, now has been eaten into and eroded a bit. And they're facing living through a little bit of a relet scenario that they weren't planning on. So it's also the perfect time for them to contemplate what improvements do I need to make so I'm competitive because I actually now I'm going to probably have a little vacancy or some rollover that I want to deal with and I need to make sure that I can compete. So Mike, I want to hear your final thoughts because look, we both know we are in a period of flux coming out of COVID. We're in a period of flux in this uh, uncertain economic environment, uh, and yet we move forward. We advise our clients and the landlord and the tenant side what to do. So what are your final thoughts of how they should be riding the storm, so to speak, uh, for the next year or two? Here's what I would say, and here's what I am saying. You know, this is a moment in time, right? It's been a couple years, but in the grand scheme of things, a couple years is not that long a period in time. So making wholesale uh, statements or judgments on how it's going to be from here on out when we're in a moment in time, a moment of disruption, uh, probably isn't the smartest thing. Um, there's a moment in time in the year 2000 when the markets were all flooded with tenants that ended in dot-com. And had you gone with the wave, that dot-com tenancy was the wave of the future and pretty much was going to end up controlling 80% of the tenancy in any major market, uh, you would have given the keys back 
if you did a lot of leases with dot-com tenants. Um, the exact opposite happened. Again, that was a moment in time. You know, utilization of space is not linear, right? It depends on a lot of things. So I think this is a moment in time. COVID has dragged on longer than people thought it would. But tenants looking at office space are evaluating experience as much as anything else. Owners need to know that and they need to adjust accordingly. Great, Mike. Well, I think uh, I'm going to use one of your lines. Uh, The use of office space is not linear. And a lot of the things that you think are obvious about we're all shrinking, uh, that trend could very easily reverse once you see the office space for what it is, not just a place to do work, a place to get together and to do things better. So, Mike, thank you very much. Terrific commentary on our office and our overall macroeconomic outlook. Uh, Great job. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks again to Mike and a special thanks to CBRE's head of Global Occupier Thought Leadership, not to mention a great friend of the show, Julie Whalen. And a shout out to the entire team behind the 2022 Global Mid-Year Real Estate Market Outlook. Well done. And thank you for tuning in. There's also more on our website, cbre.com slash the weekly take. And don't forget to share the show as well as subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll be back next week. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.